Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our time together in it. And we pray, Father, that you would speak. Encourage our hearts. May we be people who are hopeful and perseverant. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today's uh, word from the Bible will be uh, particularly relevant for those of you who are interested in the advance of the message about Jesus. Uh, Perhaps that is you who have tried to talk to friends Uh, neighbours, colleagues uh, or family about Jesus and have felt disheartened. Today's message, I think, for you uh, is one of courage and inspiration not to give up. Now, I'm aware that perhaps you are a friend or a neighbour or a colleague or family who has been brought here this morning uh, and uh, the person sitting next to you is perhaps thinking, what are you doing, Dave? (laughs) Well, on their behalf, can I say that it's not weird to wish that your friend had eternal life, is it? That's not weird. That seems like the most loving thing to do. In fact, we all do this with things that we love and the more uh, urgent it is and the more transforming in our lives we think it is, the more eager we are that our friends, family, neighbours, colleagues, anyone we meet knows about it. And for anybody on the inside, we know that the message about Jesus is both urgent and incredibly transforming. But perhaps also this morning, I think that this message is for for those of you who uh, might be thinking about going into full-time Christian ministry. And perhaps today is the day that God will put it on your heart not saying that he will, but maybe he will. And uh, this text will give you some insight into what, to, into what Christian service looks like. And opposition is going to be one of those words. But that means that it's also a message for all of us because it provides courage and hope for those who fear that the church is headed towards increased social marginalisation. And I think the text this morning will give some explanation for how God not only can work through that type of marginalisation, but in fact has designed the world in a way that this be the very means 
of making the life of Jesus visible. Therefore, perhaps it's a message this morning for you who wish that Christianity was a bit cooler. Now, this may be you at high school. I'm looking at you, ladies. Or uni students. But it may also be you in the workplace. Wouldn't it be nice if Christianity were just a little bit more cool? But if it were cool, wouldn't we be inclined to have some glory for ourselves? The kingdom of God is one in which God alone gets the glory. Jesus is the only great one in our midst. And finally, this might be a message this morning for those of you who question the credibility of the Christian message because of its lack of glamour. The answer is that this is God's design. So, where are we in the text? Uh, Just to locate ourselves, um, we are in the midst of Paul's explanation and defence of his ministry. Uh, To give you a clue for that, just turn over to chapter 5, verse 12. Paul gives you a little window into what he's doing in this fairly large uh, so-called digression. In verse 12, he says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. That is, Paul's... He's saying these words to the Corinthians, he says to them, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul doesn't look very impressive externally. He looks like a guy who's getting thrashed all around the Roman Empire. Uh, He's beaten up and he's literally bruised and battered. And he's making something of a defense and an explanation as to why his life looks so unimpressive. And uh, one of the ways that that's helpful for us is that because the man is shaped by the message, a window into the man is also a window into the message. The two go together. Paul's life and the message he preaches are intertwined so that a sight of his strange-looking ministry is a window into and a sight of this strange message that he bears. And so the big idea this morning, that's just locating where we are and what Paul's doing, but the big idea in this section today is this, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Last week, Paul said, for those of you who heard, it was, we are very bold. That was chapter 3, verse 12. He said, therefore, since we have such a hope, 
we are very bold. This week, he says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. Last week he was very bold. Now he says, we do not lose heart. And what he's going to do is he's going to, there's four things that he does. First is he, he provides a ground for his persevering hope and he grounds it in theology, something we should do with all of our lives and all of our practice. He grounds it in God, in who he is and what he's doing. The second thing Paul does is he elaborates on what not losing heart actually looks like for him. The third thing is he explains why even apparent uh, failure doesn't deter him. Even apparent failure doesn't deter him, and so he doesn't lose heart. And fourthly, and finally, he unpacks the truth that weakness is God's way. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Four things. We're going to move a little bit quicker through the, uh, the first two points. And hopefully, if I get an hour and a half, just jokes, spend uh, a bit more time on points three and four. So the first thing Paul does here is he, the, uh, just, to, just a reminder, here, here's where we're going. The big idea, I'm going to show you where that is, is we do not lose heart. That's Paul saying, he's talking about his ministry, and we don't give up. We are hopeful and perseverant in our ministry. And the first thing he does is ground that in theology. And so look with me and I'll show you how he does that. This is chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. You see the logic there? Since through, therefore, since through God's mercy, right, we have this ministry, so we have this ministry through God's mercy, because of that, we don't lose heart. Now, what's Paul saying? Well, when he says this ministry, that's what he was referring to, that's what we spoke about last week. It was the ministry of the Spirit in the new age that is bringing transformation to people's lives as everybody is now able to be like Moses and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He's got that ministry, incredible ministry. And he says, because we have this ministry through God's mercy, just like we received mercy, that's how we have this ministry. And that gives us courage and hope to persevere. Why might be that, that be the case? I think because uh, one reason is because Paul knows uh, that this ministry is from God. That's, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by my own initiative and good thinking. No. By the will of God. Secondly, it's empowered by God. Look at 3, verse 5 to 6. He says... Not that we are competent in ourselves as ministers to claim anything 
uh, for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And it's all about God, 3 verse 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. In a way, Paul is saying, I'm on something so big that is backed by God, that wasn't initiated by me, that is powered by God, and that makes me hopeful and perseverant. This, the big idea here is, this is God's thing, I'm caught up in it, and I've got hope, not because I'm great, or because of what I can do, but because I'm caught up in God's work. And then he says, therefore, we don't lose heart. That might be a helpful reminder for anybody that's got a Jesus complex and thinks that they need to be the saviour. We are caught up in God's work, therefore we have hope. The second thing Paul does, moving on to our second point, uh, is that Paul then expands what he means by not losing heart. So look what he says. He says, we do not lose heart, rather, right, so here he is, instead of losing heart, this is what we do. We, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Or in other words, he says, instead of losing heart, we have straight words, unadulterated message, and we have open lives. Honest words and open lives. And that's what he means by not losing heart. We don't lose heart, instead we speak straight up words about the gospel and we have our lives open for people to see. That's what he says there. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And um, by setting forth the truth plainly, we do not distort the word of God. And I think it's because it might have been easy to say for Paul, who is getting battered around the Roman Empire, that this is getting hard. I'm getting a bit tired of this. Perhaps if we tweak a couple of things, for example, we could remove that whole judgment bit, uh, or maybe we could ease up on all the holiness talk, a slightly different ethic might save ourselves a bit of beating. Or perhaps we could stop being so exclusive with this whole Jesus as Lord Malarkey. Then we'd get a better hearing and we'd get ourselves out of the firing line. Or maybe if we used some cash to glam our lives and ministry up a bit, uh, work on our rhetoric... we might gather a few more followers and not be so disheartened. 
And I think the temptation here, and it's a temptation for us, is to make it more about us. Make it less impossible and therefore not as dependent on the Spirit. It's not that Paul was looking for trouble, but he wasn't going to twist the message either. And perhaps you feel that yourself in the workplace, in the school, with friends, with colleagues. I'll just, if I didn't have to talk about that part of the message, if I was a little bit cooler, maybe Jesus would seem a little more attractive. And so the encouragement is, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. It's God's work. It's God's spirit. It's, it's not because he's got a message that is necessarily palatable to the fallen, sinful human nature. Paul knows it's completely contrary to that. We are in the realm of raising people from the dead. Spiritually dead, raising people from the dead. We're talking about impossibilities as we speak about Jesus. And that's where Paul moves in the next section in verse 3 uh, through to 6. So the third thing uh, Paul does, instead of losing heart, he says, in, in, a, in effect, we recognize that even apparent failure is part of, A, the spiritual battle, and B, is not insurmountable with God. So Paul sees and Paul knows that he is, he's got a task before him that is impossible, humanly speaking. But look what he says in verse 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if it is veiled, even if people don't see the glory of Jesus... He says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, because in their case, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The first thing there that he says is he says, we don't lose heart in this little subsection. We don't lose heart because we recognize that even apparent failure is part of the spiritual battle. There is a spiritual being at work 
And the point is that it's not an inadequacy in the message. Paul doesn't lose heart because he thinks, oh, it's an inadequacy in the message or an inadequacy in us. He knows, no, the devil is at work. For some of us, this is simply a good reminder that the devil is at work. For some of us, it might be an education that there is a devil and he is at work. This is sobering stuff. Note, it's not the case that the devil has blinded otherwise neutral and well-meaning people. Did you see how it doesn't say that? The God of this age has blinded the minds of people who are generally nice, rational creatures, who are looking for God and are essentially victims. And so we pity them. Is that what it says? No, it says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so a few things are, going, uh, are being held together here, and this is the way the Bible presents them, and this is the way we receive them. It's that the God of this age, that's the devil, and the people are working together in their rebellion against God. Unbelievers are genuinely under the sway of the devil, and unbelievers are still responsible for being unbelievers. I realize that if you are visiting or if you are not a believer and you're hearing what I'm saying, you're thinking to yourself, who do you think you are? What do you think you're talking about? And I hopefully you'll see that I'm just unpacking what's here in the Bible. This is what the Bible says about uh, your condition. And this was all of our condition prior to turning to Jesus. But there's a way out. And I think the right response is not, I don't like that, but rather, is there a way out? And there is a way out. And the way out is to turn to Jesus. Because only in Jesus is the blindness taken away. How do I do that? You ask for forgiveness for your rebellion against God, for your unbelief in his son, and you ask for the gift of sight. You simply do that. You say those words to him. And what uh, the devil is stopping here. Look what he says he's stopping. He's stopping the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Jesus. You see that? That displays the glory of Christ. Now, just a moment to pause and think about the glory of Christ. Part of the reason why it's not easy to see is because the glory of Christ is so counterintuitive to what 
we think as glorious in our sinful condition, which is how we are all born into the world. You see, the glory of Christ is seen in that Jesus, as God, would stand in for sinners. The wonder that God would stand in and die for sinners. The glory that victory would come through death. That weakness would be the way to display his power. That Jesus would save humanity even as he was being killed by humanity. That it would be on that shameful Roman cross that Jesus' glory would be on display. A showing, a demonstration of his love in dying for enemies. The glory in Christ's humility as he bears our shame. The glory in Christ's endurance in setting his face to the cross knowing its many pains. The glory of Christ rising from the dead as the new humanity, a brand new creation. The fact that Jesus would have such a small following, that his message would speak entirely contrary to the human nature, that the message would be, You are not great, O people. That Jesus' evangelistic message would be evil generation. Way to go. Way to win some followers, Jesus. That his message would be, you are desperately sick, desperately wretched, desperately blind and dead. And the only way to fix you is that you need to die and get a brand new you. The old one is totally useless. That's a counterintuitive mechanism. But God, in his wisdom and part of his glory, and this is what Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, perhaps they needed uh, quite a bit to uh, turn the cogs around and get them on board with how the gospel works, is he says, God, in his wisdom, this is, this is amazing, he makes sure that he's not discovered through the wisdom of people. It said, God, in his wisdom... Wasn't, made sure he wasn't going to be discovered by human wisdom. So that, through, Paul says, so that through the folly of what we preach, God would be pleased to save those who believe. And in that way, God's the only one that gets the glory, and we all get humility. Humility. God makes humility the doorway 
It's the only way in to the kingdom, to the church, to God's people. And what that does is it makes a level floor so that in this community, there's no boasting. It makes a sure foundation so that this community is entirely free from judgment. That's the foundation of this community. Nobody boasts about anything. Jesus is only the one that gets the glory, and that's the foundation of our community. And the glory of Jesus goes on and on and on. And if you can't see that this morning, pray that God would open your eyes to see the light of the message of the glory of Jesus. Paul then says, we don't lose heart, moving on, because we know that it's a spiritual battle and we know that it's not insurmountable with God. Notice the the setting of uh, the original creation setting, the Genesis setting of this. For He says here in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's what God did at the beginning. Notice the kind of imagery that we're supposed to take in as Paul gives a dynamic for how we become believers. Um, It's thoroughly God's work. We are the darkness. Into the darkness, the power of God says, let light shine. Notice what the darkness does. Nothing. Entirely passive darkness. You did nothing to save yourself. In theological speech, this is Calvinism. And it's beautiful. You did absolutely nothing. You were passive darkness. God said, let light shine into darkness. And boom, the lights went on and you saw the beauty of Jesus. And because, and what that means is that this impossible mission that Paul's on, he says, we don't lose heart because darkness and blindness is not insurmountable with God. In fact, that's how we all got saved. And so we don't lose heart and we don't boast. And so the whole thing, you know, I mean, if you know the debates or whatever, the, the kind of Cal- hyper-Calvinistic logic that um, then uh, you know, says, let's throw off evangelism if God does all the work, that's unsanctified logic at work because that's not Paul's logic. Paul says, because of that, we actually keep going. We've got hope that God's going to be at work. Because God is the one who saves, and we preach Jesus as Lord, not ourselves. And finally, as we come into land, sadly I'm not going to get more time on point four, uh, we have, Paul says, this is where he kind of shifts now. He's just been speaking about the glory of the message. We've got the light of the glory of Christ. 
We've got this incredible ministry, the power of the Spirit at work, transforming people's lives, bringing everybody into God's presence. And then he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. And you might think, well, yeah, that's, that's one of the problems with it, Paul. And Paul says, no. As is the message, so is the man. It's to show that this all-surpassing power, verse 7, is from God and not from us. We've got this message in clay jars to show that the power is from God. Note that it's God's design. Who came up with the jars of clay? Who came up with that idea? I didn't come up with it. It's not a human idea. We didn't decide to be jars of clay. God made it that his people are jars of clay. He made it that his people are jars of clay so that it would be shown that he gets all, that the power is only from him. It's his design that he be glorified through his weak people. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Weakness is God's way. Now, that might be part of what he means by being clay at this point, is that he's not spectacular. He's free from a kind of uh, uh, glamour in a worldly perspective. But I think, uh, I think the bulk of what he's talking about, at least the bulk, is that he's talking about a persecuted people. I don't think, when Paul says that weakness is the way, that he is somehow... Um, validating sinfulness as though we can smuggle our sinfulness into the weakness basket which is an easy one that we do which is why at um, uh, in, our, in our first uh, staff weekend away that I was at it came to the point of um, uh, saying that, that certain bodily functions are a weakness in the sense of our humanity is okay. Uh, Jesus says yes to that, but he says no to sinning. <clears throat> I think persecution is in view, and here's why, and this will be my final point. This is what he means, I think, when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay. This is saying we have this in these persecuted, marginalized, oppressed people. And here's why. First reason is because of the persecution language in verses 8 and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. You see that? He could have said a whole bunch of other things. We are ill. We are finite, if he wanted to talk strictly about our humanity. Secondly, if it's simply mortality that he's talking about, then how does verse 10 not to re relate to unbelievers in the same way? Look at verse 10. Uh, he says, as he continues to expand on what he means by being jars of clay, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. If he's simply talking about our human uh, physical frailty, 
then why is it not the case that all uh, humans are carrying around uh, the death of Jesus in their body? No, I think he's talking about persecution. Uh, Thirdly, in verse 11, he says, uh, look what he says there, as he continues to expand, he essentially is saying the same thing in three different ways in in these verses 7 7 to 12. For we who are alive are always being given over, this is verse 11, to to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Persecution keeps Paul unimpressive. And so just as we come around and think about that for our own lives, this dynamic is, as I said before, as is the message, so is the man. As is the crucified Lord, the one we follow, so are the people. The death of Jesus was full of shame, but in the midst of that moment, the Roman soldier says, surely he is the son of God. As we, as Christians, endure, I think this is what the power is, the power to endure under oppression and persecution and being treated as uncool, through that broken, through that unimpressive looking uh, uh, vessel that we are, Jesus shines. And we see it can only be Jesus that, sh- that, that, is, uh, that is glorious in this people. And, that's a re- uh, and as we come around again to uh, those of you who might be considering ministry, this is the shape of ministry. It's a suffering ministry. And for myself, this, I think, is an encouragement to not lose heart. I lose heart to kind of go back into the firing line, as it were, put my neck out to sound, uh, to talk about the message of Jesus and think, I'm just, you know, do I want to talk to another person who might just say to me, that sounds crazy, mate. Or, you don't seriously believe that, do you? And words still hurt. We don't have to be physically beaten to feel that um, sense of uh, pressure and oppression. Words still are hurt. So, I think Paul's saying there, uh, if, if if it were simply the case that this vessel that I was was made of gold, it might be easy for people to say, of course people are going to be attracted to that. But as he is a vessel of clay, as he himself kind of mirrors the strange glory of the crucified Jesus in his own life, in his own unimpressive, persecuted life, that likewise shines out a particular kind of glory, and that glory is the glory of God. And it's the kind of glory that only shines through those weak vessels. So, church, and those who are interested in the advance of the Christian message, we do not lose heart.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this word. Thank you for the encouragement and the teaching that you've given to us this morning. Uh, Please help us to lay hold of these truths, uh, to be like Paul, uh, to ground our actions in who you are and what you've done, to have courage to not lose heart and to tell people about this amazing message of eternal life and forgiveness of sins through your son, Jesus. Amen.